This show is about how the organized white supremacist movement recruits young people in America. In order to tell this story in full, you'll hear explicit language, descriptions of violence, and disturbing references to the Holocaust. The movement also uses language intended to dehumanize, denigrate, and offend Black and Latino people. In this episode, you will hear limited use of racial slurs unbleeped. We recognize the harm and hurt of broadcasting these slurs. At the same time, we do not wish to present the hate-filled ideology of white supremacists as anything other than what it truly is. I was at home watching the news when breaking news came out about a rally happening in Charlottesville. It was what I can only explain as like a post-traumatic stress moment. You know, torches being carried, uh, chants of the Jews will not replace us, and ultimately a young woman being run over and killed. Parents saw their children on television at the Charlottesville rally and suddenly were horrified. My email, my phone, text messages, social media messages blew up. People looking for help with people that they loved who suddenly they realized may be part of this white supremacist movement. Why were they calling you? You know, I think that they were calling me because they thought that 30 years ago I would have been at that rally. White supremacy. It's a sinister and sometimes invisible system all around us. The institutions and the laws that have kept white people on top in America since before the country's founding. You don't need a white hood in your closet to be part of it. But extremists in costumes like that have defined the outer limits of our reckoning with race. Members of the organized white supremacy movement shift the goalposts of what society finds acceptable. But there was a time when it seemed the movement was starting to fade. Back in the 1920s, as many as 4 million Americans were card-carrying members of the Ku Klux Klan. The numbers have been nowhere near that since then, but with the civil rights movement in the 1960s, KKK membership started rising again. Then by the 1980s, it was clear that efforts to legalize segregation were going nowhere, and some thought the movement was finally dying. Anyone who might have predicted the demise of the KKK wouldn't have predicted what came next. This time, the message of hate took root among young people in American cities through a new generation of angry kids. With shaved heads, steel-toed boots, and swastika tattoos, neo-Nazi skinheads styled themselves as the frontline soldiers in a coming race war. This podcast will tell the story of how a generation of racist teenagers in the 80s and 90s breathed new life into the American white supremacy movement, and how that planted the seeds for hate among youth today. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Odette Youssef, and this is Motive. The Hate Crate. When's the last time you looked at this stuff? 
I don't know that I've ever like fully gone through it in the last 20 years. These are old braces, old suspenders that I used to wear. But I never wore them to hold my pants up. I wore them down because if you wore them down hanging low, then it signaled that you wanted to fight, that you were ready to fight somebody. I'm in Christian Picciolini's living room. He's rooting through a big box on the floor. It's like a time capsule from his years as a racist skinhead. Yeah, this is the hate crate. Uh, It is uh, a lot of garbage. Stacks of music magazines featuring interviews with white power bands. Concert flyers with some of the most disturbing drawings I've ever seen. Things that celebrate genocide. And then Christian pulls out a red cloth, about six feet tall. This is actually a World War II relic. This is a German Nazi flag that appears to have bloodstains on it. Where did you get that from? I don't know. I was a resourceful teenager. In the middle, there's a white circle with a black swastika. Christian says it's authentic. It's the kind of thing that hung off buildings and lined the streets in Nazi Germany. It takes my breath away. There was a kind of an antique store where I grew up, and I think I traded my baseball cards that I'd been collecting as a kid for that flag. And that's that was my transition from like this 13-year-old, you know, normal, shy kid into somebody who was willing to trade everything that I'd been collecting since I was a baby, basically. Probably a couple hundred, a couple thousand baseball cards for, you know, the this, this swastika flag. Today, Christian considers himself a former someone who was deeply in the organized white supremacy movement, but then got out. Some more, you know, old T-shirts and things like that. The hate crate has survived multiple moves and a basement flood in Christian's parents' house. But inside, he still has the calling card of a skinhead, his boots. These were kind of like what you graduated to. These are called rangers. Uh, You know, steel toe boots. Oh, yes. They're black leather Shelley's Rangers, tall and chunky with white laces. And in the late 80s, hard to come by. Uh, okay, so this was a store. Here's a catalog that we would have ordered from in England. So the place called the Merc. You know, and in it, it was just a shop for skinhead wear. What did you like about the fashion? It distinguished me. It was punk rock. But not like gutter punk. Like it was still stylish. Like I still had respect in the way that I, you know, I dressed. It was clean cut. And with the boots, there were the jeans, the bomber jacket, and finally, the hair. In the crate, there's a photo of Christian from before he became a skinhead. He's a smiling kid dressed in a cowboy costume. He's got shiny brown hair in a bowl cut. In a later photo, he's a stony-faced teen, raising his arm in a Sig Heil salute. Christian's hair is cropped close. He shaved it off when he was 15. And I remember coming home to my mom, like with a very, very close shave, and her crying when she saw my hair, because she's like, oh my God, like you had the most beautiful hair, you know? And, um, and I think that that's the moment where I recognized how much what I was doing could affect my parents. I grew up as a kid, very sheltered and lonely. Uh, I didn't have any friends. The Picciolinis followed the classic immigrant story in some ways. 
His parents came from Italy and settled in a familiar ethnic enclave where they had relatives. It was in a suburb southwest of Chicago called Blue Island. But once they could buy a place further away from the city, they did, because that's what success in America looked like. The move was hard for Christian. Truth was, his mom and dad couldn't really afford it. They both worked several jobs, so his parents were rarely around. And suddenly, he was the new kid with a strange last name in a mostly white neighborhood. So I was uh, in a little bit of a dilemma growing up where I didn't really fit in as this, you know, Italian-American kid with a, a really hard-to-pronounce last name, you know, that rhymes a lot with weenie. Uh, I didn't know if I was like this Italian kid or this American kid. I wanted to be American. I didn't want my name to be Christian Picciolini and have it mangled. I wanted to be like Bob Jones. Putting on the jacket and the boots like felt glamorous. I felt like a different person because before then I was wearing, you know, like Velcro Keds and, you know, my mom had me in a bowl haircut and I, you know, like I was a kid and then all of a sudden I wasn't. What was the belief system that you had when you were really into this stuff? The worldview of a Nazi skinhead at that time in the 80s and 90s was that we were vanguard warriors fighting on the front lines of a very fierce battle over the safety of the white race. There are a lot of flavors to the white supremacy movement in America. Some are tied to political beliefs. Some go under the guise of religion. But regardless of the strain, to enter that world is to enter a world of conspiracy theories. We believed that there was a threat because of immigration, things like multiculturalism, which we said was polluting and destroying the white race. And that programs like welfare were designed to take money from hardworking white people and line the pockets of black and brown people. And all of this was the work of elite puppet masters. The governments and the societies that held the power throughout the world were enabling this through a global Jewish conspiracy. What was the name of that Jewish conspiracy? Well, it had a lot of names, but we knew it as Zog. Zog, the Zionist occupation government, a secret cabal of Jews who are plotting to control finance, the media, and politics. This sits at the center of what Nazis believe. And it's an idea that has taken root across other forms of white supremacy as well. That corrupt Jews have subverted democracy to take over. That they hold the power and the purse strings that control Americans' lives. Jews are recognized as smart uh, and elite, while people of color uh, or anybody who's non-white are seen as subhuman, uh, as people who don't deserve to exist in a productive society. When Christian became a neo-Nazi skinhead, he thought he was seeing the truth for the first time. And his job was to prepare for the inevitable and imminent race war. I subscribe to the idea of we need to violently, if necessary, defeat the enemy. Our goal was not to be patriotic. It was not to be pro-democracy. It was to overthrow the government. This is a Confederate flag, which, you know, people are still arguing today that this is a symbol of heritage and not hate. I can tell you 
I was using it in the 80s. People before me were using it as a symbol of hate. I waved it. I wore patches on my jacket. We used this to try and connect with the average American white racist because we knew that waving a swastika flag turned even the average American you know, white racist off. So what did we switch to? We switched to a symbol that was more recognizable. It's the same shit. It's the same shit. When Christian first became a neo-Nazi skinhead, he felt that he was in on the ground floor of something new. He didn't see any connection between himself and the old guys in hoods and white sheets. But not long before Christian joined the movement, a new mantra had been coined. That mantra came to define and unify all the different elements of organized white supremacy. It's known as the 14 words. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. You were allowed to think how you wanted to accomplish that goal and think differently from others, but ultimately you had to agree to that tenet, that mission statement. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. So Christian thinks he's preparing for a race war. At the same time, he's still in high school. He's got social studies and chemistry class. You know, I was skipping school. There would be like, you know, two or three weeks at a time when I wouldn't show up. I thought it was so beneath me that I was, you know, fighting a war as a soldier to save the white race. And I needed to do homework about, you know, H2O. Like it was, it wasn't an option. I thought the teachers were ridiculous. I thought the students were, you know, zombies spinning their wheels. And I thought here I was in my spare time saving them from the world that wanted to destroy who they were. And they didn't even recognize it. Christian wasn't wearing steel-toed boots on his way to Catholic school, but he did have his music. On the bus, wearing my uniform, my, my tie and my button-up shirt and my loafers and listening on my little foam earbuds. More than anything... It was the music that hooked Christian into the movement. I'd already been kind of into punk rock or kind of aggressive music before that. And when I first heard, you know, oi or white power music, it kind of took it to another level. Music was the gateway for me. And it was all from the UK. The first popular white power bands were not American. They were British. Early skinhead music was called oi, the blue-collar way of saying hey in Britain. Back then, this music was hard to find in the U.S., but skinheads would share tapes. Bands like Screwdriver and No Remorse and Brutal Attack, and they were all talking about being a young person on the margins. Talked about being angry at your parents and the system, and it was something that I thought no, nobody else in the world knew. It was so new, and I had found it. Do you remember getting your first OI tape? Yes, but this was my first copy that I actually owned. It was like a Maxell, you know, dub tape of a screwdriver album. So I think I had a Walkman that I just listened to it over and over, and it would, you know, you'd flip it over, hit the button, and rewind it. It would make that noise. And I think I played that tape so much that it started to sound wobbly. Screwdriver talking about, you know, the annihilation of white people or 
you know, like things like even like it's hard to say, but like nigger nigger get on the boat, nigger nigger row, like lyrics like that. Like I was a kid. To me, when I put the headphones on, it didn't really matter what other people thought because I knew I had the secret knowledge that made me better than them. Because I saw them as just kind of like these weak pawns. And I wasn't a pawn anymore. It was empowering at first. You know, I kind of was like this... I was kind of like this nothing kid. And it was suddenly like I wasn't that nothing anymore. It felt good. It was the first time in my life that I actually felt like seen. Seen. And by the time he was 16 years old, making a name for himself. I had an idea that there was a guy in charge, and his name was Christian. Yeah, I know Piccolini. We all butchered his name. This is the age of Chris Piccolini now we're talking about. He was called Christian Piccolini, uh, which is getting his name wrong so many different ways. But I don't know that cultural sensitivity towards his name was our main concern. Christian recruited and led scores of young neo-Nazi skinheads in the Chicago area. Oh my gosh, these are they're Nazis, like Nazi Nazis? Nazis. Nora Flanagan was a punk rock girl on the southwest side of Chicago. She remembers seeing a couple of her older brother's friends recruited. All of a sudden, they've both got shaved heads. One of them's got a big Confederate flag. They're both wearing these, like, very distinct boots. I think I said, like, what are you guys, fucking Nazis now? And they were like, we are Chicago-area skinheads, and we represent this, and we are defending the neighborhood and the country. I was like, wow. Them boys was, was, wasn't no joke. Lawan Harris also came to hate Christian Picciolini. I know the motherfucker. From summer to summer to summer to summer to summer of fighting him and his friends. Because that's how it was. Nice bats and chains and bottles, you know what I'm saying? Big, big axe handles and shit like that with nails in it. Shit like that. It's like, you might as well just brought the axe, goddammit. I remember getting home from school one day to a phone call that a friend of mine that was very anti-racist was in the hospital because a bunch of guys jumped him at the bus stop. And I said, who? And he said, Chris Piccolini's guys. And that was, that was when I put a bat in my trunk. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. What's that? This is sort of been one of our banners when we played on stage. This is actually the banner that was on stage in Germany. I think it just says Final, Final Solution. Solution. It's 1992. Christian is 18. 
He's the frontman for a white power skinhead band called Final Solution. The name was meant to be shocking. The Final Solution. Hitler's plan to eliminate the Jewish people. And I remember going through Frankfurt Airport in Germany, all decked out in like our black bomber jackets, black fatigue pants, boots, shaved heads, with a guitar case that had Final Solution sprayed on the side. Christian and his bandmates had landed there to play at a neo-Nazi skinhead concert. That concert was illegal. Even just parading through the airport with a guitar case like that was flouting the country's laws. After World War II, Germany banned symbols from the Third Reich, as well as explicit neo-Nazi music. And here we are, just flaunting it. And nobody said anything to us. People looked at us, gave us the side eye, but we were intimidating. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, I could count on one hand how many bands, white power bands there were in the U.S. at the time. And I could count on two fingers how many bands out of those five bands actually performed a concert and actually went on to do anything other than rehearse once or twice in their basement. But the basement is where Christian started his first white power band five years earlier. He and his bandmates would load up on beer, then practice and perform small concerts while his parents were living on the floors above. This next song, uh, it's called America for Me. We only practice it a few times, but uh, it should be all right. Uh, yeah! It's America for Me. I had never played an instrument. I had never sang in a band. But because I didn't play any instruments, I said, I'm going to be the singer of this band. I'm going to write lyrics. And I had met some skinheads from Indiana by that point who were actually pretty decent musicians. Now I'd like to introduce the band to you. Uh, I'm the singer, and uh, we're going to introduce you with our names and our cock sizes. I mean, the music was terrible. It was anger music. It was angsty teenage music. But talking about racist stuff, right? This is a folder of old lyrics, handwritten lyrics. I even wrote one in Italian. Christian flips through yellowed notebook papers. The song titles include Tides of War, Skinhead Youth, Vanquished Kingdom. Part of me remembers the feeling I was having writing these. It's weird because I recognize my writing, but I don't remember the words. Wake up all you white men and show your face, vow your allegiance to the master race, load your rifles and lace your boots. With this fight against us, we must find our roots. That's ugly. Christian's music lionized the physical violence he committed. It was like his street fights were battles in some sort of noble war. The music was also a powerful tool for recruitment. Music was the best way to do that. It was propaganda. 
It was explicit, but not a lecture. Yes, it was meant to educate and to indoctrinate people, but mostly it was to play on the angst, the drunkenness in some cases, the fear and the anger of people to then kind of whip them into a frenzy and then drive the point home to them through repetitive lyrics over and over. White, straight and free, white, supremacy, white, we bridge truth, white, I knew they didn't understand fully what I was singing about. I also didn't understand fully what I was singing about, but I knew that it was easy enough for them to buy into and for them to believe in. Neo-Nazi skinheads also had their own literature. The hate crate is filled with zines, black and white DIY packets, some from the U.S., many from Europe. And this is very punk rock, right? Like the the music zine that's stapled together, that interviews like these obscure bands, and even other photocopied, you know, stapled together things. I was doing interviews for what I thought were like international music magazines, and I was a celebrity. They put my, you know, pictures in, in these things. In one of the zines, he's interviewed not as Christian Picciolini, but as Christian Hate. Sure, it's nothing I'm proud to read to you. The following questions were answered by Chris, the singer, during July 1991. What are some of the songs on your demo tape and what are they about? Open Your Eyes, Telling the White Man to Wake Up, uh, Rights of the Abused, Parents Being Assholes. That's what I was writing about. Are you all skins and what does being a skinhead mean to you? We are all skins, although Derek has long hair. Being a skinhead means standing up for what is yours at all costs. It means keeping the white race pure, separate, and strong. White power. In just a few years, these homemade zines turned into glossy, professionally published white power music magazines. In the 90s, the Resistance Records label became the biggest name in white power music. It produced records that would be distributed internationally, and it published Resistance magazine to promote them. It was a million-dollar white power music industry, the first legitimate business of the white supremacy movement, and the first sustainable model for its growth. The Hate Crate has some of the first editions of Resistance magazine. And in here was everything from op-eds to, you know, top ten lists of people uh, to, you know, crossword puzzles that you had to find white power and to, you know, coloring. Um, How important were these to your sort of understanding the movement that you were in? These were my textbooks. They were my education. They were my propaganda. They were my lifeline. The magazines also helped connect neo-Nazi skinheads to each other. And if you look, you know, in these magazines, it lists all the other P.O. boxes of people. So you'd start to develop a distribution list. And then you'd send them your flyers, and then they would send you their newsletters and this and that. And it was like Facebook, kind of how it is now, where people are sharing memes. This was pre-internet. P.O. boxes were the way that different crews of neo-Nazi skinheads would meet and stay in touch. Christian managed the correspondence for his crew from a post office box that he rented in Blue Island, Illinois. 
when we first started out, there were like three people doing this, right? By the time I was done, there were hundreds and hundreds of people all over the world doing this. Uh, and they were also inspiring because you'd be like, oh, a new group started in, uh, you know, Calabasas or, oh, there's a new one in San Francisco or whatever. And it, to us, it's like, hey, this is working. Christian points at the hate crate. This would be one day at my post office box. Like I, I could have probably, if I kept everything that I had, filled a room with things. But I'd go to the P.O. box, you know, for one day or every other day, and I'd walk out with envelopes that were like this. At first, it was like you'd go to the P.O. box and you'd be lucky if like there was anything in there and then you'd read it. But before you knew it, I had to have people go through the mail because there was so much of it. Today, white supremacists network from the comfort of their own bedrooms. They find each other on message boards and chat apps. No postage required. But back then, P.O. boxes were the 1.0 for young people looking to build the movement. And concerts brought them physically together. By the time Christian and his bandmates walked through Frankfurt Airport in 92, he knew he was part of a movement that was global and growing. And I knew it was going to be a historic moment for music. I knew it was the first time that American bands within the movement were playing anywhere outside of the U.S. And I wanted to be a part of it. It was kind of amazing. It was in an old cathedral. There were 4,000 people in the audience skinheads from all over Europe that had come in to this former East German town of Weimar who were singing our lyrics, who were dancing to our music. It was a brotherhood uh, and a sisterhood of thousands of people all across the world at that point. It was an army. And for a few minutes on stage, this Italian-American kid from suburban Chicago the one who wore Keds and sported a bowl cut, was that army's inspiration. To now stand on stage and command that kind of attention uh, was something. It was intoxicating. Like, more than that, it was addictive. We wanted to play a clip of you performing there. We are a skinhead band from America. Yeah. We are called the final solution. Sing high. Clear the streets. The SS marches. It's time for white revolution. What do we want? Six million more. Another final solution. Final solution. How do you feel listening to that? I haven't listened to that in many, many years, and I can tell you. Uh, that I'm physically ill. I had a physical reaction. Like I suddenly started to sweat when I heard that. Um, and it was very embarrassing and shameful for me to hear the things that I said. 
um, um, man, I really don't know what to say to that other than I am completely embarrassed by it. Well, here's the thing. I had no basis to say that. I had no evidence to make those claims. I had no reason to spew that kind of hate because none of those people that I had directed that towards had ever done anything to me. And the people I was saying it to, those you know, few thousand people that were in that cathedral in Weimar, were strangers to me. And to think of how irresponsible, how reckless, and how disastrous, frankly, those words that I said were and are today um, really makes me ashamed of who I allowed myself to be. As a reporter at WBEZ, I cover stories about race and class. A few years ago, I met Christian. He told me that Chicago was one of the first places where racist skinheads organized in the U.S. I've been wondering why ever since. Christian is working with me on this podcast to answer that question. And it's a journey that's taken us to some dark and fascinating places. Nobody's really told the story of what happened more than 30 years ago when punks and skins in Chicago battled in the streets. And what I've discovered is that that story has a lot to do with how the white supremacist movement draws in young people today. I don't know what you're really trying to do. You know, the world's in turmoil and you want to do this skinhead podcast. This season on Motive. I just remember hearing them kick at the door, I remember a boot coming through the door. And that's all I remember. We look at the rise and fall of neo-Nazi skinheads. Finally, it led to me telling them, look, forget the skinhead thing. Grow your hair out, go to college, join the police department, get into the government. My whole idea was infiltration. And they're there right now. How that story connects to today. This was supposed to be something new, that we weren't going to have those types of people be involved in this alt-right Charlottesville thing. But yet I got there, and, and there's David Duke, like, right in front of me. We're still having the debate, is white nationalism a, a threat? I can tell you it is. This is not something that we can ignore anymore. They've got a 30-year head start. And we try to find the man who started it all. Where did this ghost go? And why isn't he out right now when it's his, his moment? I guess I'm just wondering if he's dead. Like, But there are no death records. Where is he? What I understand uh, from a, a former associate of mine, uh, he was killed down in Texas. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Odette Youssef. The producer is Colin McNulty. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Story consultant, Christian Picciolini. Our intern is Hannah Boomershine. Joe Dassault makes the show. Original music by Stephen Jackson and Jesse Dukes. Special thanks to listeners whose financial support of WBEZ 
made this podcast possible.